Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Setta. We have a great new episode to start season three of the show. But before we begin, I want to take a second to thank you all for your support of Illuminate over the past two years. And today, I'm thrilled to announce Illuminate Live. Join us in Miami during the AAO for a special live recording of the podcast featuring an innovator circle of some of my previous guests. The event takes place at Bodega Speakeasy on Saturday, May 21st at 5.30. Come experience the podcast while enjoying some light bites and the same cocktails we're having on the show. Space is limited, but you can request your tickets today at illuminateorthopodcast.com slash Miami. Illuminate Live is proudly sponsored by Grin, Lightforce Ortho, and Embrace. Now, without further ado, we're on to today's episode. We have had so much innovation in orthodontics with plastic, with 3D, with printing, with all of these things, but yet we have not changed the patient journey. I'm Dr. Chris Setta, and I'm shining a light on the innovators of our profession. Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. On today's show, my guest is Dr. Adam Schulhoff. We often shine a light on new products or services that are for orthodontists by orthodontists on this show. While many of these innovations are clinical solutions or improvements to our business systems, not all of them will revolutionize the orthodontic experience from the patient's perspective. Today, I'm thrilled to feature renowned innovator, Dr. Adam Schulhoff. For those of you who might not know Adam, he spent his early career as a speaker for 3M Incognito and was widely regarded as an expert in lingual orthodontics. As you'll hear on today's episode, direct-to-consumer orthodontics led Adam to think of ways to make his patients' orthodontic care more convenient. This drove Adam to start GRIN, a remote monitoring platform that allows orthodontic patients to have telehealth visits with their specialist providers. In 2021, Adam and his team at GRIN were the recipients of the coveted AAO Innovator Award. Well, welcome to the podcast, Adam. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Why don't you tell everyone where we're at? We are in not-so-sunny Orlando. It's I think it's, what, 40 degrees outside? 40-something. <laughs> it's so cold. It's freezing. Um, poor kids. I see them running around the lobby, you know, like, Daddy, you told us we're going to a conference, but we're going to be able to have fun. And no, not so much. Not so much. But uh, yeah, we are in not-so-sunny Orlando for the AAO Midwinter Meeting. And I think this is the first AEO meeting since COVID, right? I believe it is in person, yeah. Yeah, in person, yeah, I should qualify that. But uh, I think the AEO has done a really nice job. Uh, we're staying at the Lowe's Hotel, which has multiple properties here. Somewhat of a labyrinth. Uh, I realized yesterday I did about six and a half miles of walking around this complex. Mostly lost. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, your six and a half miles was probably my nine miles trying to figure out where the heck I was going. Anyway, why don't you tell everyone what we're drinking? It is only noon. So as much as Dr. Seto really wanted to have something stronger, I was like, you know what? It, it, it's 5 to 12, Chris. Maybe we should just have a, a latte. <laughs> you didn't have to talk me too hard out of that. Yeah. So we are having coffee today because it's early. But we did enjoy a cocktail last night, which I think I should mention. It was a Japanese cocktail, right? Which is an old classic. And I believe the recipe is cognac base. Orjat and some bitters, and that served up. So uh, almost like a Manhattan, but I, th I thought it was delicious. It was delicious. It was a very good choice on your part. Oh, well, thank you. So that, so that was the cocktail officially, but again, we're having coffee today. So Adam, we've sort of been in each other's orbits for a while, and uh, believe it or not, even though we've sort of approximated each other, we don't know each other super well, but I've had the pleasure of sitting down with you and chatting with you this weekend. So. Yeah, it's been fantastic. I love how you say approximate each other. I think it happens so often in our lives now 
because of Facebook and because of all of the groups, the wonderful groups that we've got going on, right? So yeah. many orthodontists, so many of our colleagues were kind of like, I love you said it, in their orbit, we know what's going on in their lives. We see their vacation photos. We kind of get a sense of who they are in the forums to some extent. But until we actually get face to face and sit down and have a drink, we don't get to really, really know each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I enjoyed the time we got to spend together uh, last night. But why don't you tell everyone about growing up and your early life? Sure. So Chris, as he mentioned, is a New Jerseyite to some extent. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was born and raised in New York, in Staten Island, New York. Um, Staten Island, New York, I've attempted for a majority of my young life to get rid of the accent. (laughs) I think even though people know Jersey as the Jersey Shore, it's funny because when when I would lecture anywhere in Europe and people would ask me, you know, where I'm from and I would say New Jersey, right away their minds went straight to jersey shore i I get that too right there's so much more to new jersey (laughs) than you know snooky we're really not like that and in fact the interesting part is that most of those cast members are from staten island that is true they are from staten (laughs) that's the irony of it (laughs) right so the irony is oh you're making fun of me because i i'm in new jersey now for being similar to the cast of jersey shore but yeah, I grew up in Staten Island, so that was kind of my upbringing. It was the Italian side of the island and the Jewish side of the island. I think for the most part, because you know I'm of mostly Italian descent, you're obviously of Jewish descent. I think for the most part, like half of my friends were Jewish growing up in New Jersey. So there's such Very, like an intermingling. I think there's a lot of similarities in, in family the culture. Life. Yeah. Culture, yeah, absolutely the same, right? Like I can start telling stories about my Jewish mother and what our holidays were like, and you would be like, "That's exactly what Christmas was like," yep. you know? Yeah. Absolutely. So tell us about your parents and your grandparents. So my parents, Orthodox Jews. Uh, mm-hmm. So I did grow up Orthodox, which, uh, of course, a lot of our colleagues are Orthodox. And then we've got plenty of Jewish colleagues that are not. Um, and I think that there was, growing up anyway, a certain level of, you know, it's kind of like the old stereotype. You know, you've, you've got to be a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer kind mm-hmm. of thing going on in my sure. family, right? So four brothers. My oldest brother's an oral surgeon. I'm the orthodontist. My next brother, who is the black sheep of the family from a professional perspective, is a partner at Deloitte. And then my my youngest brother is an uh, ophthalmologist. Oh, very interesting. So my mom got three doctors and the reject accountant, who probably make, makes more money than the rest of us combined. Deloitte's a great company. <laughs> One of my best friends is there. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, between that and his financial knowledge and his investments, I mean, he's doing quite well. But uh, yeah, but growing up, Orthodox community, very, very strict, as you can imagine, you know, a lot of rules and and all of those kind of things, which uh, those that know me know I don't do quite so well with. (laughs) Um, My grandparents, Holocaust survivors, we talked about this last night a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, very impactful in how we're raised. Um, I think that sometimes some people don't realize, you know, it's not just about what we see on TV and in the movies, but... I was essentially raised at my grandmother's knee, mm. and she firsthand went through all of this, you know? So, so she, you know, she had her arm tattooed. She was in Auschwitz, and, you know, a lot of her family didn't make it, et cetera. And I think that the mentality that they come out with is, number one, we have survived, we will survive, we have to rebuild bigger, stronger, better, smarter. Mm-hmm. So the concept of, you know, the Jewish doctor or that Jewish people tend to be successful, it's really a matter of a lot of hard work and energy coming out of we were almost wiped out to some extent mm-hmm. and the only i don't know if i can say fuck you on the podcast to the, you can you know, say it all right so the only fuck you to the nazis is hey not only have we survived but we're going to flourish and so mm-hmm. you grow up with grandparents mm-hmm. who are instilling in you you're going to work your ass off to be top of your class and to do everything, you know, well so that you can be successful, have an unbelievable life and be powerful enough to some extent that hopefully something like this can never happen again. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of that that certainly you just grow up with from the very, very beginning. So that really has just not such a huge impact on your parents, but it's sort of like trickled down through generations, right? Absolutely. And in fact, in some ways, that next generation didn't quite have as much opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when my grandparents finally came over, my grandfather was an electrician and mm-hmm. he was self-taught and that's what he did. So he had a certain level certain socioeconomic level that he could provide for his son. My dad 
that he couldn't necessarily go to the best schools, et cetera, but he worked, my dad worked his butt off as well to be able to then provide even better for his children so that, you know, we could then get to the point where, you know, two generations removed, we're now at the level where we can go to real professional school and pursue other types of careers. You know, you kind of have to have that build up to some extent. But yeah, impactful. And then, you know, I think that there's always then even within us, whether we like it or not, or fight it or not, from very young, it's about whatever it is that I do. And I do see this in a lot of my orthodontic colleagues has nothing to do with Jewish or not Jewish is we want to be the best at it, right? We want to be the top of our class. We want to, you know, have the best practice, the biggest practice, all of that that comes along with it. So through my extensive research, I couldn't figure out where you did your undergrad. So the reason for that <laughs> is it's interesting. I heard your last podcast with Tom Shannon, yeah, right? Tom Shannon. Yeah. And he was saying, I never graduated. Well, I was laughing because that's exactly what happened to me. So look at I'm uncovering all this. <laughs> <laughs> so the way it went down for me is that high school, working my butt off yeah. again, knowing that I wanted to, you know, be a professional. I wanted to become, at the time, mm-hmm. I was pursuing either medicine or dentistry and I yeah. wasn't sure which one. So I was doing a whole ton of AP work. And then a lot of Jewish kids, after high school, we take a gap year and we actually go to Israel for a year. Oh, awesome. And that was very, very impactful in my life as well, being able wow. to be away from my parents for the first time for a significant amount of time, living away, living abroad in a culture that was completely different than what I was used to back at home. And during that year, I was also doing a lot of things where I was getting credits. So I had high school credits. I had what we called Israel credits. And I was like, once I made the decision that I wanted to become a dentist, I was like, I need to pursue that as fast and as efficiently as possible. Mm. And so I took all of these credits together. When I came back from Israel, I did double summer sessions. I took Orgo 1, Session 1, Orgo 2, Session 2. I literally was in college for a year and a half. So I did double summer sessions, one full year, double summer sessions, and I was done. Wow. The only thing I was short was three credits from one of my courses in Israel. Hmm. And at the time I got accepted to dental school, I hadn't yet been able to grab those credits and actually transfer them over, but they accepted me. I'm like, all right, cool. We're good to go. And I just never took care of that. So officially, I did not graduate. Unofficially, I pieced together courses from College of Staten Island, Long Island University, Turo College, uh, where else? I don't know. A bunch of different places. Wow. What an interesting story. Yeah. You know, I know we actually went to the same dental school. And what's crazy is you graduated basically the year that I came in. So That's we totally amazing. like missed each other. Right. But yes, so we both went to, you can say the mouthful of letters. UMDNJ, University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, which no longer exists because now it is Rutgers. Rutgers. And, you know, I'm sort of happy about that change. I know we were chatting about this and you just feel like you were never really a Rutgers alumni because now we're officially like Rutgers alumni and we're on their mailing list and they want money from us. Exactly. We're getting emails like, as a Rutgers alumni and pride in your school, please give us a check for. And I'm like, "Uh, no. (laughs) Exactly. But what's so funny is about UMDNJ, which my father actually went to medical school there, which was it was actually CMDNJ, College of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey back in the day. But, you know, it's just such a mouthful of letters. Even my mom would be like, oh, you know, I think Christopher goes to UDMNJ. <laughs> People <laughs> have to correct her right, all the everybody time. Everybody used to say to me, wait, U- University of Maryland? I'm like, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. So now I just tell people Rutgers. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this, obviously the school's still there. They just sort of went under it. Rutgers is the state school of New Jersey for right. people who don't know. And now they're sort of under the Rutgers umbrella. So anyway, so after you graduated, where'd you do your ortho training? Did my ortho training at Columbia. Mm -hmm. So I stayed local New York Mm -hmm. all of my life. Great program. At the time, it was under Dr. Kanji Losi, who many may know from the ABO. Mm -hmm. Um, Phenomenal orthodontist, unbelievable guy. 9-11 happened while I was at the program, unfortunately. And yeah, yeah, that was quite impactful. Dr. Kanji Losi, of course, had a son in Tower One. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So we kind of went through some of that with him as well. So unbelievable. Two years at the time, two-year program. Um, We really had a great group of faculty that each one 
argued incessantly with the other about what discipline was correct. <laughs> like true orthodontists, right? Yeah. Um, but because of that, we learned so many different disciplines, including tip edge. I mean, oh, wow. uh, there are going to be those listening to this podcast like tip edge? What, what's tip edge, right? But what I loved about it is I had a lot of friends in other programs under the auspices of a guru, right? And mm-hmm. But then they're only learning that discipline, sure. that applying system. We really learned it all. And so getting out, we had just a tool belt filled with various different things that we can pull out for various different cases. So it was a really, really good experience. Yeah. And I think you had Dr. Nicolay there too, I right? I did, yes. So, so he exposed time, you maybe to lingual at that point, right? So I had to fight him for it. Uh, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> so he was doing lingual at the time. For those that don't know Dr. Nicolay, he's no longer with Columbia. He's now with NYU and he is one of the original lingual gurus has been treating with lingual appliances, various different ones for years and years and years. And when I was in my program, uh, I graduated uh, 2003. So just to understand, this is exactly when Invisalign came to market. That's right. right? Which, again, another very impactful milestone because we started doing a little bit of it almost as a beta. And what we realized very early on is the problem with plastic back then. And and I'll be honest, it wasn't really the problem with plastic. It was a problem with our understanding of how to move teeth with plastic. It's not brackets and wires. You have to think completely different push system versus, you know, a system that can push and pull and et cetera. Mm -hmm. But what I was very quickly seeing was the fact that the patient population that was walking through the door for this new appliance system was primarily adult. And again, you know, for the younger orthodontists listening to this, you know, we think back to the end of the 90s, the early 2000s, 95% of a practice was child and adolescent. You had maybe 5% of adults walking around with brackets and wires. Very low percentage. Very low percentage. And what I was looking at really was there's a shift happening here, right? So whether I liked plastic at the time or not, I was like, there's a shift happening and If I'm going to graduate, and at the time I had already had two kids, if I'm going to graduate and I know I'm staying local to New York, which is the most, we'll call it competitive area in the nation, I would say, this is the kind of thing where I had to understand not where the market was today, but where it was going. And so I was really looking at what John Pham, the great John Pham talks about blue ocean. I was looking at, do I want to be fighting with every orthodontist in whatever building I was going to end up in, right? Because we didn't think about it as how many orthodontists in, you know, square mileage. We thought about it as this building that I'm going to take out of space and how many orthos in this building. That's how, you know, competitive it is in New York. I said, I need to really think about developing some kind of niche, right? Some Mm -hmm. kind of differentiator. And to me, seeing the adults starting to come to orthodontic practices for aesthetic solutions was the key. And so having said that, and knowing the limitations at the time of our knowledge of plastic and how it moved teeth, I was, hmm, I've heard of lingual orthodontics. This could be something interesting for this new population. Mm -hmm. And so I would go to Dr. Nicolay and say, please teach us. And he would say, there's so much you have to learn. Well, he has a French accent, so (laughs) I'm not going to even attempt it, (laughs) but there's so much you have to learn about you know, labial orthodontics, there's no time for you to learn lingual orthodontics. And I begged and I pleaded. And finally, he allowed me for a couple of days to visit him in his uh, clinical practice is, you know, within the university. And so that was really the first bug that I that I caught for lingual. And that's amazing. And so I think it was around the time of your residency that you started construction on one of your practices, right? I did. So I knew at the time that I probably was not the right fit for associateship or buying a practice. During my residency, I was working for a phenomenal mentor, Dr. Sheldon Waltuck, Edison, New Jersey. Mm. And I would work for him, you know, two, sometimes three days a week. And he taught me a lot of the orthodontics that I now know, practical Mm. orthodontics, right? Mm. And he turned to me and at one point it said, So my Jewish nickname is Avi, right? Mm -hmm. So he's like, Avi, there's no way that you and I can work together because you have amazing new ideas that I'm not ready for. And so the best advice I can give you, as much as I would love to bring you on as an associate, is do your own thing. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. And that resonated with me so much. And it was probably the best advice at the time that I could have received. And so instead, I turned to a, a buddy of mine, somebody who actually I grew up with, went to high school with. And he was in Monty as a pedo resident. And I said, you know, what do you think about combining orthopedo? Now, everybody listening today, that's the jam, right? Orthopedo. Right. 2003. There wasn't a single orthopedo in the tri-state area. Is that right? There really wasn't. And in Mm -hmm. fact, again, mentors and instructors within our programs, what are you guys, crazy? You're going to open up an orthopedo, Adam. You're not going to have a single referring doctor because they're going to be afraid that your pedo is going to mm-hmm. steal their patients. And as we know where the trend has gone again, you know, thankfully, this was one of the gambles that worked out in our favor. When we come back in just a moment, how Adam eventually sets up his orthopedo office in New Jersey, as well as a boutique lingual practice in Manhattan. And how one particular adult patient leads to an aha moment that finds Adam prototyping with toilet paper. Stay with us, you're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. What if you came in Monday morning, looked at the schedule, and every appointment was as simple as an aligner visit? With Stride Custom Braces by KL Owen, you can leverage your investment in digital workflow to grow your practice, address staffing challenges, and find more hours in your day. Why Stride? Stride Custom Digital gives precise control in all three orders using a kit of 27 patented braces, empowering orthodontists with nearly infinite bracket combinations, advanced AI software, and true straight wire mechanics. To request a Stride custom demo, go to kloembraces.com. Mention the Illuminate podcast and receive five free cases with your Stride starter pack with complete team training. Terms and conditions may apply. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Adam Schulhoff. So I believe you actually started construction like eight months before you graduated, right? Yeah. So once we got together and said, hey, we're going to do this, I started right away looking for space. And uh, we were looking particularly in northern New Jersey, in the suburbs. And I found a space and we negotiated a deal and something, you know, I had never done before. You know, we talk about getting out in practice and not knowing how to run a practice, do anything on the business side. I mean, negotiating real estate deals and construction. I think that's so impressive to do during your residency. Impressive or stupid, either one. But but I leased the place eight months prior to graduation, started construction six months prior to graduation because I wanted to graduate and be in my practice the next day. Wow. Yeah. Now, sure enough, I was, but I was in that practice playing Minesweeper (laughs) with not a single patient, you know, calling, Uh, you know, and so again, before Facebook, right? So Mm -hmm. now I would have been in practice on Facebook, arguing with orthodontists about the benefits of DSOs or not, but, (laughs) or whatever else we tend to argue about. Um, But back at the time, yeah, it was, it was like solitaire and Minesweeper. Minesweeper. That's it. I remember those days. Yeah. So funny. So eventually you went on to open a practice in Manhattan too. Yeah. So Because of my interest in lingual orthodontics, right, I was kind of looking at this niche and I understood that I joined with a pedo from the beginning, but that pediatric dentist had patients that were three years old. And so I know a lot of us are now fans of of early interventive treatment, but not at three, right? Yeah. So I knew that there was going to be this lag before Mm -hmm. I started really, really seeing the benefits of the pedo-ortho relationship. And so instead of trying to go just after, again, the red ocean, I said, let me start advertising for adults, even in this practice. And that actually was really, really successful. So as my pediatric dentist partner was growing his practice, I was growing within that same roof a phenomenal adult practice based Mm -hmm. on lingual orthodontics, clear aligners, because now we were starting to understand how to work with clear aligners, et cetera. And eventually... We had a healthy ortho, adult-oriented practice. The pediatric practice matured enough to start this huge influx then of the adolescent patients, and that's really when that practice took off. But there was a time as I was doing that and treating a lot of adults in Oradell, New Jersey, Bergen County, a suburb of New York City, where my adult patients would turn to me and say, you know, this is fantastic, but 
during the course of the working hours during the daytime, I'm in the city. And so I either have to go to work late to see you or come back early to see you. Have you ever thought about opening up in the city? Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, that could be interesting. And so that's exactly what I did. I found a space in New York City. You know about space in New York City, oh, yeah. right? So Not cheap. Uh, yeah. And orthodontists love measuring their <clears throat> size based on how many <laughs> chairs they have, right? Well, I have a nice little Jewish two-chair practice, you know? It was like, I called it a boutique practice because I'm like, oh, you know, we've got to put a good spin on the fact that literally it's 750 square feet, right? But, you know, it was, it was actually unbelievable what we did on two chairs even versus my my New Jersey practice with six chairs. Yeah, your profitability per square foot must have been crazy, right? Because for a lingual case in Manhattan, I can only imagine what you were getting for. So that was the key. The key was really that you had to not just, you had to commit, right? So it was Mm -hmm. like, all right, there literally was an orthodontist next door to me, right? So I I had to commit to how am I going to come to the city and differentiate? I'm opening up a adult lingual practice. And that's what I did. And I would get patients at the time early on that would want aligners. And I actually would send them to a buddy of mine. And then that buddy of mine would send me his lingual cases. So I committed wholeheartedly at the time to a lingual only practice and it paid off in dividends. That's awesome. And circling back to being in each other's orbit, the first time I think I heard you speak was about 10 years ago in Atlanta at an incognito talk. You know, you did a great job with the presentation. Thank I you. loved your energy and how much you shared. But I mentioned to you earlier, I came back and I didn't do a single lingual case because I realized <laughs> this is complicated and it really is a niche. You have to get good at it, at least at the time. So that goes along with the commitment, right? So yeah. I think that it's not the kind of thing where you can dabble, do a case here, do a case there, because it's not just about us. It's about our teams. You need to train that you know, team, you need to make sure that they're doing it frequently enough that they're not losing the skills. But you are right that on my two chair lingual practice, I was much more profitable than any other practice I've owned ever since. Wow. That's incredible. Now I want to fast forward a little bit because at a certain time, I believe Smile Direct Club opened a shop in Soho, very close to your practice, right? Oh yeah. So tell us how that had an impact on your office there. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I say, and you've heard this before, is that I loved when Smile Direct Club came to market and attempted to market the idea of access to care, but their first scan shop was on the most expensive piece of real estate in New York City. Right. right? Like they were right next door Mm -hmm. to like a Louboutin and, you know, whatever else (laughs) it is, right? I'm like, okay, access to care. Yeah. You didn't open up in the Bronx. You opened up in Soho. But yeah, at the time, because I had set up this adult-oriented orthodontic practice, If you, as a New Yorker, would Google adult orthodontics New York City, you would find my practice. And so suddenly here I was seeing, at the time, probably about nine, ten new patient consults a day. And I start saying, wait, three out of my ten are patients that went through Smile Direct Club and now are unhappy. And then the next week it was like seven out of ten are patients that went through Smile Direct Club. And suddenly it was like multiple days of Hmm. 10 out of 10 patients coming through my door. And I'm like, what the, what is going on here, right? And, you know, you were there with me. You know what the entire industry did and yelling and screaming, the ADA, the AAO, somebody's got to do something about this. I kind of looked at it a little bit differently and went back to the way I thought of things when I was graduating, Hmm. thinking about where's this market going, trying to understand What is going through a consumer's mind when they make this conscious decision to do some kind of health care without an actual doctor, right? And so all of these patients that came through, I treated them. I even gave them a little bit of a discount, but I said, I'll give you this discount on what my normal treatment would be, but I need your time to do some qualitative and quantitative market research to understand what's going on, right? Yeah. And sure enough, we actually ran through about 300 patients. And when I talk about qual versus quant, right? So obviously surveys, Mm -hmm. right? And then the, you know, that's the quantitative. And then the qualitative is interviews. And so we interviewed a whole bunch of these. I think we Mm -hmm. ended up interviewing like 50 of these patients to really take us through the process, their mindset and everything. And sure enough, time and time and time again, and this is part of what I presented at that take back the specialty lecture I did at the first Pearls meeting was trying to 
have orthodontists understand the consumer a little bit better. Mm. And time and time and time again, it came back down to convenience. Right. It wasn't about the price, right? And it was just understanding that as much as we think our patients love us, and they do, and they'd love to come have a coffee with us and talk to us, but we are a disruption in their life. And if there's a way that they could do this better, faster, easier, they will. And that's really what it was about. I had uh, specifically, and this is the guy I keep on coming back to. He was an ER physician in my chair, having done Smile Direct Club. Typical case, upper diastema, lower crowding. They close Mm. the diastema. They relieve the crowding. He's now totally traumatic on all of his incisors. And that's your typical case. Happened time and time and time again. And, you know, he's a New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker. He's a healthcare, you know, provider. So I literally turned to him and I'm like, dude, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, you're a doctor. you like, why would you attempt to do this? And and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, Adam... I'm on a three-day on shift, then 24 hours off, three-day on, 24 hours off. It's like, in my 24 hours off, I want to sit on my couch. I want to swipe through Tinder. I do not want to come see you, (laughs) right? He just said it like that. And, And I'm like, you know, this is really where it's at. We have had so much innovation in orthodontics with plastic, with 3D, with printing, with all of these things, but yet we have not changed the patient journey, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got all of these cool, fancy, shiny new things, but what does that mean to a patient, right? Exactly. when one of my colleagues is advertising a specific bracket system, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, why? Does your consumer understand what that bracket? No. What's in it for them, right? right? That's what every human being wants to know. What's in it for me? And so at the time, anyway, I was really understanding this shift in the fact that they aren't just patients anymore. They are consumers, right? When mm-hmm. I got out of my program, if somebody referred to a patient as a consumer, they oh, would have been shocked. that was so shot, taboo. Right? Yeah. Exactly. But now we have so much a clear understanding that we are in this business, right? Yeah. And obviously, there's unbelievable good we can do for people. But at the end of the day, these people on the other side of these teeth are consumers and they have wants and needs, not just about their final result, but about the journey that they have to get there. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned this to you last night. I love the lens you look through in terms of innovation. And when I came out with the precision aligner buttons, you know, I was trying to solve a problem I thought for patients because I got frustrated when they came back, when the buttons came off with their aligners to wear their rubber bands and the mom had to pull the kid out of school again. And it was just sort of embarrassing for me. You know, at the same time that took up chair time to replace those. So, you know, I sort of look at innovation too, from that perspective. And certainly we want to innovate in our systems and processes and, and get better clinical results and outcomes. But the convenience factor, you you know, I love that. And I've heard you mention before the idea of the five-minute appointment, which I know I pat myself on the back when I do a retainer check, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, I got them out of the chair so fast. But tell uh, you know, your perspective on that. Well, and it's not even just my perspective. It's, yeah. it's the patient's perspective because exactly. I've seen it in action, right? You come out to mom and you're like, all right, mom, this is what we did today. And look, we got little Stacy in and out in five minutes, right? Mm-hmm. And the mom just looks at you glaring like are you effing kidding like i just had to run around town take stacy out of school grab her brother timmy from karate lessons run through traffic look for parking around your practice that took me 40 minutes and you've got us out in five that's i mean why did i need to come right and it's like exactly that we pat ourselves on our back for the efficiency of we got that appointment down to five minutes but from a mom's perspective, the disruption in her day versus what now is something that's not valued because it was only five minutes. And could you not have done that differently or not done it at all, perhaps? And so that was really, you know, almost a moment of awakening as well, where like, yeah, it's great that we're efficient and we can get a patient in and out with self-ligation or whatever, you know, really nice and fast, but do they even have to be there? What is it that we could potentially achieve for these patients whereby we are not giving up the level of care? Absolutely not. And there are certainly times where we should be laying hands on a patient. But if we start thinking about what we do and who we do it for and where the benefit is, we start coming up with 
maybe some different ideas about how mm. we could potentially do things. Yeah. So I guess it's the, you know, patient surveys you did and sort of this aha moment that led to Grin, right? That's exactly right. And so the aha moment first led me towards, we need to change the narrative that's out in the consumer market now. Smile Direct Club has raised a lot of money, done a lot of marketing. They're talking to consumers a certain way, not just about what they do, but about what we do. Mm-hmm. And we know that that was all false, right? right? Doesn't have to be 24 months, metal braces coming in every single month, right? right? And that's what they were putting out there. And so when I started lecturing and kind of tacking on those 20 minutes that I call take back the specialty, it was really because my initial thought was, how do I affect a change in the narrative mm-hmm. that orthodontists put out there to their communities? And then hoping through network effects, if every orthodontist started talking a little bit differently in their social media, on their websites, et cetera, then that could potentially through network effects be a very, very strong, powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And so I was really first bringing the information to orthodontists and kind of trying to get them to see we need to talk to patients differently. And if we each do it in our own little bubble in our fragmented market, it will grow from there, right? Mm -hmm. But as part of that, it was also my mind starting to think through how can I, in my practice, do this a little better. Now, having this adult practice, I tended also to have a lot of patients that would come see me from all over the world, Europe. Russia, you know, and I would be doing a lot of, and this was back in 2015, 2016, 2017, before the word teledentistry ever existed, (laughs) right? We were doing different types of FaceTime and WhatsApp video calls with these patients in between appointments and allowing them to push off their appointments a certain, you know, time frame. Mm -hmm. And it was efficient. And it worked really, really well. What didn't work well is sometimes when they would show me their teeth through their phone through video, I couldn't really see a lot. But at least it was a check-in point. And at least, you know, if somebody's literally getting on their private jet to fly in to see me, they don't have to do that every eight weeks. They can push it to 12 and sometimes more. And so I started also at the time thinking around how can I potentially, during these calls, see things better? And, you know, you now know with COVID, everybody was using spoons and all this other stuff, (laughs) right? And I'm like, all right, you know, I had the spoons going, I had other things going, and this was even, you know, 2016, 2017. I'm like, what if I can actually create something that can get in there better, right? Mm -hmm. Not just handing even cheek retractors out, which were very uncomfortable to patients, but something that'll, you know, give me the right kind of color, focus, lighting, et cetera. And I laugh now because my first iteration of the Grinscope was actually a toilet paper roll tube. <laughs> like I was That's just, awesome. Right. So you know how the best ideas come to you in the shower, right? Oh, so they totally I'm like, do. I'm like literally in the bathroom and I'm thinking through like, wait a minute, what if we could do something like this and go into the mouth, right? And so I grabbed what was left of the toilet paper. I unrolled it. I took the spool. <laughs> I put it on my phone camera. I put it in my mouth in the mirror. I'm like, oh. This is something, right? <laughs> So, you know, like people make jokes about ideas on the back of a napkin in a bar. This right. is, I think, two levels lower than that. Uh, yeah, it's like a fifth grade science project. Right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but that's awesome that the prototype started off as something that simple. And so how did it go with the toilet paper tube? And I mean, was it effective? It was effective. I would okay. never turn to a patient and say, grab your toilet paper roll, right? So this was more about, okay, so this is, we're at the beginning of a good idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, the toilet paper tube was too narrow. I started working with things that were a little bit wider. I believe I went to a Dixie cup. <laughs> and then, you know, it kind of grew from there. But right around the same time that I was fooling around with that, I was giving a lecture in Israel, in, okay. in Tel Aviv, outside of Tel Aviv, actually. And I gave that last little component of the take back the specialty talk and, you know, the market research and all of that. And this was a time where Smile Direct Club had not yet hit Europe. So a lot of these doctors had a million questions, and a lot of them would say to me, oh, it's never going to happen here, right? Like, oh, you guys in America, you're a bunch of idiots, (laughs) but it's never, right? We know how to keep things like that at bay, yeah. After the lecture, two gentlemen approached me, shook my hand. They said, Adam, unbelievable lecture. We're not from the dental world, but why is it that you as an orthodontist standing up there on stage are giving these guys such amazing information about what's to come, and they're just fighting you on it? Right. And, you know, so I'm like, who are you guys? Well, you know, and it turns out that one of them is my current co-founder and the other one is the chairman of my board. 
Israeli startup guys who at the time had just sold a company to Medtronic, right? Mm. Huge, huge uh, medical device company. And they were looking at dentistry as their next gig. And Mm. they were looking at the dental market and they were like, dental is so far behind in true innovation that there's just a ton of opportunity. And they were actually, prior to meeting me, thinking about bringing a Smile Direct Club type model to Mm. Europe because it didn't exist yet. And I said, hell no, guys. Let's go to the bar. Let's talk. And let's figure something out. And we ended up at the bar till three in the morning. Uh And I then left Israel the next morning. We started on calls like once a week. It went to twice a week, three times a week. And suddenly we were on the phone every night and Grin was born. Wow. Now, I just want to back up a little bit because I have so many potential inventors reach out to me. They have an idea and they don't know the next steps, right? And I don't think there's necessarily a right or a wrong way to go about commercializing that idea. Right. But it sounds like, so you probably had your co-founder sign like an NDA and then sort of take it from there. Uh, So at the time, I didn't even know that much. And I also knew my own bandwidth. A lot of our colleagues come over to me and they're like, oh, I have this idea, blah, blah, blah. It's going to make millions. I'm like, okay, here's your idea. What's your next step? Right. And how are you going to implement? And what kind of time are you going to be able to spend on this? How much money are you going to be willing to spend on it? Right. There's all of those other unbelievable amount of steps in between. So at the time with these guys, I knew that they had already been tried and true startup guys. So they they had a system. They had success. Um, So it was first just an initial conversation, even before an NDA. And the formation of the company at that point in time was really together as a unit. So they never signed an NDA. But what I generally will tell most of our colleagues is the first thing you want to do is do a patent search, Mm -hmm. right? Because if it's an idea, you want to make sure it's protectable. And you have to check because we think we know about everything out on the market. We don't. I mean, you've probably gone deep into the black hole of patent research. Oh, yeah. unreal how many patents are written in our space. That's right. Right? And some never see it to market. Oh, not at all. And there are thousands that are there just for blockers. That is true. As well, right? Mm -hmm. Patent trolls. Yeah. But yeah, I usually recommend people start off with like a Google image search, right? That's a good place to start. If you have an orthodontic product idea, check the different product catalogs. And then Google now has basically the entire patent library, including international patents online. So it's pretty easy. I think it's like patents.google.com. And you can start searching. So that's generally exactly what I tell them. Start that way, but then at some point you've got to get a lawyer involved. Once you get the lawyer involved, now you also have to understand the costs involved, right? So, you know, first having the lawyer do a deeper search because, you know, as great as Google is, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of other things going on. And then also anything that's pending but not written isn't published yet. So there's a lot of that. But, you know, there's also the commitment, right? The commitment to financially support mm-hmm. this and the commitment in time that, okay, what is what is my real bandwidth? I mean, I run a practice, I have a family, so how much do I believe in this idea that I'm going to invest all of this time, effort, energy, and money to bring it to market? Yeah. So what year was it that you got together with your co-founders and started forming Grin? 2018. So you sort of had this going for a while. And then, of course, the COVID pandemic hits March of 2020. And that probably accelerated things quite a bit, right? It certainly accelerated and changed it to some extent. You know, our real plans with Grin, which, you know, everybody sees Grin right now. And we're seeing one tiny little piece of what Grin is going to be. Oh, wow. Um, And that's really because of what COVID has done, right? Mm -hmm. So our real plans for Grin are much grander. Mm-hmm. Our plans for Grin ultimately comes back to having consumers understand the value of an orthodontist in their teeth straightening journey. Mm-hmm. And it's now grown also to a lot of other aspects of oral care. And so most of us listening to this podcast understand that there is so much potential, not just in orthodontics, but across all specialties and even in general dentistry for a patient and a doctor to be connected in a completely new way Mm -hmm. where a doctor can almost reach through the mobile device into a patient's mouth, right? Mm -hmm. And there's just so many possibilities there from emergency care to triage to, you know, hygiene checks and many, many other things. But what COVID did as we were building was we were actually going to go live with a couple of doctors, a couple of orthodontists that, you know, were colleagues of mine and were totally, you know, psyched about this idea, where we were going to start actually acquiring consumers, matching them with a local orthodontist, hmm. and giving them this 
much, much better journey mm-hmm. where absolutely there's the times you need to come in physically, but you're going to have a better journey because you're going to have to come in far fewer times because there's a huge virtual component to this. So we're giving you the convenience, the efficiencies, thereby also lowering overhead and lowering costs. And everybody's happy, right? Really taking care of all sides of this equation. So that was more from like Smile Direct Club and probably the initial thoughts around Grin, right? And then COVID hit and it was more of like not a convenience thing, but people couldn't actually come in, right? Exactly. So we were starting with that consumer component and we actually went live with it the end of February. (laughs) Yeah. And so we had altogether three patients come into doctors prior to everything getting shut down, right? And and we were like, oh my goodness, all right, we've got to put this on pause. What are we going to do? And I turned to my team and I'm like, guys, we have an unbelievable idea. We have a prototype of a product. And suddenly we're in a situation where every patient going through orthodontic care is going unchecked. Well, guess what? We have that solution. And so I challenged my team to get through regulatory manufacturing in a very, very short time frame, and they did. I mean, regulatory generally on something like this would probably take anywhere from six to nine months. We ended up doing it in three, four months. And then manufacturing, I mean, my team really, to their benefit, hustled. And we essentially had products out within four months from that point in time. And so- At the time, remember, as you said, we were going to be a consumer-facing company, but linking in, bringing the orthodontist to this and putting a patient in your chair, never, you know, without an orthodontist. And suddenly we had scopes, we had doctors and patients that needed it. What do we do, right? Do we sell it to doctors? Do we not? And I was talking to 3M at the time, as you know, I used to be a, Mm -hmm. a big KOL and speaker for them. And, you know, all along in this journey, they were interested. They were like, wow, this sounds like a phenomenal idea. And I turned to them and I'm like, there's such a need on the market now. Will you guys go in with us on an initiative? We're going to send out everything that we can manufacture in this time frame. We're going to send out to orthodontists for free. And that's what we did. So we had this COVID initiative. We sent out 3000 units to Mm. the market free of charge. And in my mind, this was about, I can test my product. Yeah. I know we're kind of like shut down because of COVID, but let me get feedback. Let me get feedback from doctors, from patients, you know, about the scope, about the platform. And that's what we did. And the feedback was, I love this, but I need more because we sent out 3,000. So it was essentially 10 scopes to 300 doctors. And these doctors came back and said, "Uh, I've got 300 patients that I need this for. And that's exactly where I was like, all right, well, we can't keep on giving it out for free. We're going to have to set up some kind of, you know, subscription, some cost, and, and let's get it Sure. Done. And that's really where the grin you know today was born. When we come back in just a moment, we discuss grin's product and pricing, how it compares to other remote monitoring services, and grin's recent partnership announcement with Procter & Gamble. Stay with us. You're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from Lightforce Orthodontics. Lightforce was co-founded by orthodontist Dr. Alfred Griffin and is one of the fastest growing companies in orthodontics. Lightforce provides a digital platform to fully customize 3D printed tooth moving tools. They've recently launched the world's first fully custom 3D printed translucent bracket. And with their revolutionary face map technology, you can even plan for optimal aesthetics and smile arc by incorporating a digital scan of your patient's face. Complete customization enables your cases to not only finish faster, but with even better results. Head over to lightforceortho.com to request your demo today. And we're back to our conversation with Dr. Adam Schulhoff. Now, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Grin, why don't you explain the product and the the software a little bit more? Yeah, so Grin is is really a platform, and I call it a communications platform. We all think of remote monitoring as, you know, almost, oh, remote monitoring for aligners or for this or for that. Grin is about your entire practice, right? So Grin is a new way that your patients, your consumers, which are used to picking up a mobile device and doing everything from that device, will now 
absolutely be connected to your practice through their mobile device. Now, in order for them to be connected to your practice through their mobile device beyond just texting, but in a clinical fashion, this is why we have what we call the Grin Scope, which is a device that they attach to their phone, to the camera, and then through their app, they're run through how to take a quick what we call scan of their teeth. Mm-hmm. The scan is a video, so we don't just get to see still shots. We get to actually see function, especially when they're in class two, class three elastics, things like that. So you can see their bite. You can see where they're hitting, where they're not, etc. The scope allows us to see all the way to the back molar and, most importantly, full occlusal shots as well. Great. And so my goal was that if I am going to be looking at a patient remotely, I need to be able to have the information as if the patient was in my chair and I had my fingers in their mouth, right? Mm-hmm. And so we've got a scope, we've got a patient-side app, we've got a doctor-side web app. Mm-hmm. And this is just a brand new way of how our practices are really seeing patients. And so my practice, for example, obviously, has gone fully in with GRIN, which means every single patient in our practice has GRIN. Our aligner treatments, of course, patients are now sending us a scan every time they change their aligners, and I have a digital coordinator that checks every scan and tells them, yep, you're good to go. Hmm. And when they get to that end of their set, right now we're at a point where we actually only do one refinement. We haven't done a second second refinement in nine months. Oh, that's great. It's been phenomenal. Um, With brackets and wires, we've been able to push off the cadence of when patients need to come in. Because now we're watching them monthly. So we're still really responsible about the oversight. And in fact, overseeing them in some ways better than we were before. But now patients have the convenience where they can come in far fewer times to the practice. We also use it for remote consultations. I mean, there's a lot of different applications. We're not going to get into all the you know, minutiae of it. But so many new ways that we can acquire patients, keep them through the journey of orthodontics, monitor them keep an eye on their retention post-treatment. I mean, it's just a whole new world. Lots of possibilities. Yeah. So going back to your digital coordinator, if they see a scan, obviously if everything's either tracking or progressing nicely, it's probably a green light go. But yep. what happens if they see an issue? At that point, do they schedule them to come into the practice no. to be seen? Or, so no? with okay. aligners, as you know, if you're catching it on a micro level, you're just telling that patient to wear this same tray for another week. You're maybe sending them a quick video through the platform on how to use a Chewy, mm-hmm. right? And so what we found is that as long as you're catching it soon enough, just wearing it an additional week is going to work, right? Oh, so great. this is really about dialing in. You know, there was that whole thing at the beginning of aligners, two weeks, one week. Oh, yeah. We know every patient is different biologically. So when something's not tracking, sometimes it's compliance many times. Sometimes it's just very simply that maybe we programmed a certain movement a little too aggressively and we shouldn't mm-hmm. have. Maybe there's a little bit of binding somewhere and something's taking a little bit slower. Maybe it's just the patient's biology. Right. And so we have found that as long as we're following with the patient on a weekly basis when they're changing their trays and we're catching something and being good about saying, hey, you know, wear this tray an additional week, we're getting to a point where at the end of treatment they are at least on third base. And generally, if we're doing a second refinement, I mean, a first refinement action, Mm -hmm. then they're going to be 10 trays or less for that refinement because we're that close. Awesome. Now, can you talk a little bit about like the pricing structure for Grin, like how much it costs to the practice for the scopes or for the software? So that was another piece to this. You know, when we went from the point of, hey, we're sending them to everybody for free to, oh, we got to start charging (laughs) people because it cost us money. One of the key aspects to me in understanding when we are all implementing any new system in our practice Mm -hmm. and ultimately changing the culture of the practice to some extent is a heavy lift. And I felt that if a practice is going to do it on the one-offs, right, then that's not efficiency, right? right? You're going to have, you know, if you have five chairs and you have five assistants and two of your assistants are making appointments with a virtual patient, but the other three are making appointments with a non-virtual, it gets complicated, right? Like, wait a minute, do you have grin? Do you not have grin? What should we do? And so when it comes back to pricing, I understood that it was really important for a practice to be able to implement across the board. Mm -hmm. Because really this is something, and I can talk to so many unbelievable stories that doctors are now utilizing Grin and coming to me with amazing new ideas. But I wanted it to be something where this communication platform, this way of scheduling a practice, this new culture in the practice of hybrid virtual and in-person care is across the board. 
And so pricing had to reflect that. And so right now we are at a point where we charge practice one ninety nine a month. That's mm-hmm. not per patient. That's per practice one ninety nine a month and twenty four dollars a scope. In an average practice of two hundred plus patients, you're looking at thirty five dollars or less a patient. Like mm. we're talking about the cost of the swag bag that you generally hand out to yeah, a patient, right? Before treatment that has not so much ROI. Now you have a product that if you even save one visit, and of course you're going to save a lot more, yeah. you know what our visits cost. So yeah. your ROI is like multiples of what you're actually spending on this. My goal was for it to be a no-brainer for an orthodontist walking into a consultation room not to think, is this going to be a patient that I'm going to monitor? I don't want them to think that way. Every patient in the practice gets monitored. Every patient in the practice gets this platform because this is now integrally part of how we practice and how we communicate. Yeah, I love that pricing structure. And it's yeah. funny, I was thinking too, this seems like a no-brainer, right? One ninety-nine a month and plus 24 scope. So Yeah, wow. it, I tried so cool. to make it really, really nice and easy. Now, I know when we were chatting last night, you were mentioning sort of, I guess, while you were developing the idea for Grin, a French company came out with a similar product, yeah. right, in dental monitoring. Yeah. So what are sort of the, maybe the similarities and differences between dental monitoring and Grin? Yeah, sure. So when when all of this was being built, for me, the key was usability, right? So for those of you that have used any others out there, including that company, usability was a very, very big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, they had like a cheek retractor and then this massive box, and it was very uncomfortable for patients. It was difficult to teach a patient how to utilize it. Mm-hmm. And even most importantly for me, using that device, you could not get real occlusal shots. Hmm. And you and I both know when you have that little bit of crowding on your incisors, you're not going to see it from the frontal, right? You really have to get occlusal in order to see it. So number one, it was going to be ease of use, ease of use not just for the patient, the consumer, but also for the practice and for the doctor. Um, The platform had to be something where everybody knows how to use that platform, right? So a lot of times with a lot of different devices and companies out there, there's so many bells and whistles, it gets complicated. Mm -hmm. I wanted something that on the consumer side, our entire platform was based off of chat. Because I said, every six-year-old in my practice knows how to chat. And so that's what the Grin platform is actually foundationally based off of. Mm. A lot of these other companies, after we came out, started introducing chat to Mm. their platform, which they didn't have prior And cool, I take that as a compliment, that's cool, but the platform wasn't built on chat, and so there's a difference in usability there. And then, again, from the the actual scope perspective, as you know, a lot of companies then copied our design for our scope because so it's kind of like you know there's the ease of use there's there's our product that's been you know knocked off a little bit which is cool um but on top of it is also even the way we think about things and the pricing structure Mm -hmm. so even the pricing structure that i just mentioned i wanted to make sure it wasn't at a point where it was hundreds of dollars per patient as these others are because then you as a not just clinician but as a business owner are like wait a minute do i put this patient on monitoring right right at our price point, our doctors are not just putting new patients on monitoring, but even the patients in treatment. I had a doctor come to me and said, I gave it to every single one of my retention patients. Because mm-hmm. if they don't have to come in for retention and they can just utilize this, again, I'm saving one or two visits. I've got the videos of their teeth at retention stages in my system as a legal proof so that mom can't come to me two years from now and say, oh, the retainer never fit or yeah. you know, all of yeah, those right. kind of things. So there was so much value based on how low our price point was, that it's just totally implementable across the board. So these are a lot of the differentiators that we wanted to come along with. And then, of course, you know, for orthodontists, by orthodontists, we have had a lot of these DTC companies come to us, and I've turned every single one of them away. And, of course, a lot of these other companies out there are actually white labeling for our DTC companies. So... You know, there's just that mindset Mm. and what I consider the ethics and morale of, you know, supporting the specialty versus not. So let's talk a little bit about that, because I know you and I both subscribe to innovation for orthodontists by orthodontists. So what would you say do you think would be the future of orthodontics in terms of innovation? So it's interesting that when I was up there during that Mothers of Pearls meeting, that first one with a beer in my hand, talking to my colleagues at the end of the day, A lot of this was about, I was seriously concerned that we were going the way of Prosto, right? Mm. I have some really, really good close friends who are phenomenal prosthodontists, and they're like cleaning teeth. 
seriously, in New York City, many of you guys probably have seen Instagram after Instagram of these self-proclaimed gurus mm-hmm. and celebrity dentists who graduate at the bottom of their class, have no real you know, dental hands, but hire a PR firm and suddenly they're masters of veneers and full mouth rehabs. When the prosos who really know how to do this stuff very, very well, unfortunately have fallen by the wayside. And, you know, when I gave that Take Back the Specialty lecture, my mindset was, if we don't do something to change the narrative to the consumer, we're going to be in trouble in 20 years, Hmm. right? I, I, at the time, had a 14-year-old son. He's now older, of course, and now he told me he has absolutely no interest in orthodontics. (laughs) But at the time, I was like, I want a hand in my practice. I want there to be a viable specialty. And I was really worried that it was heading in the wrong direction. And obviously, things have changed a little bit over the course of the last couple of years. But I think a big part of this still is that even with what's happening with STC and Candid now deciding they're going to sell to dentists, it's still diluting who we as orthodontists are. Mm. And so one of the biggest missions at Grin is absolutely to change the face of oral care and the way people consume oral care. But one of the key mantras within that is continuing to get out there that when you need to move your teeth, do it with an orthodontist, period. Orthodontist will take you through the best possible journey, will give you the most phenomenal result and do it the right way. And I think that ties in with the recent partnership, right? That you partnered with Procter & Gamble and Oral-B. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So we were very fortunate that, you know, when we were building all of this out and I was kind of out there selling the dream that... Procter & Gamble actually came knocking on our door and said, Adam, we heard you on, I had this funny situation where I ended up on CNBC and they were like, we heard you on CNBC and we love everything you're saying. So Procter & Gamble, oral care company, they nobody does consumer at home quite like Procter & Gamble, Oral-B, Crest, et cetera. And the way they envision the future is really understanding that there's going to be a blend between the consumer at home and the providers, right? Mm -hmm. So they were very clear about that. You know, they've got all of their market research on a level that none of us can even touch. And they said, what you're talking about in orthodontics has implications well beyond just orthodontics. People want straight, people want white. The people that are coming to Crest for white also want straight. Mm -hmm. And so imagine a day, for example that a consumer is buying a whitening product, whether it's online or on a shelf, and there is a grin scope within that product. Mm. And now that consumer is using the scope to actually track whitening and to actually see that their teeth are getting whiter and to customize that whitening experience. But now the app is saying to them, hey, we're noticing a little bit of crowding. Would you potentially be interested in being connected to a local orthodontist, right? My mind is blown right now because the White Strips product has been so commercially successful. Absolutely. to tie in with that. To tie in with that, to tie in with Oral-B, to tie in so many different ways. But again, here's a unbelievably large company that gets it and understands the importance of the orthodontist in that journey and experience, which is why we're partnering with them. So to me, again, everything that we're doing at Grin, and absolutely we're going to have some general dental-facing ideas like imagine hygiene checks from home and you know post-ops for perio and surgeons, et cetera, mm-hmm. but everything is about connecting the consumer to what they need from an oral care level and putting them in the right chairs, meaning the specialist chairs. Wow, that's amazing. Well, Adam, we're going to wrap things up here today. I want to congratulate you and Grin on being the recipient of the 2021 AEO Innovator Award, which was a phenomenal accomplishment. Thank you. We're totally stoked about it. When we first set out to do what we're going to do, one of the things that I really was very cognizant about as we talk about for orthodontists, by orthodontists, is getting the buy-in of my colleagues, because that's what it's all about. This is all about really trying to make sure that there's a future for the specialty of orthodontics. So having the AAO kind of give us that stamp of the Innovator Award has been something that was really exciting for me. Fantastic. And if colleagues want to learn more about Grin, where should they go? www.get-grin.com. So www.get-grin.com. Very good. Adam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This has been phenomenal. It's been great getting to know you more and spending some time with you and enjoy the rest of the AO conference. Thank you so much. You too. 
That's all for this episode of the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. If you like the show, please take a second to click subscribe. I would also love if you could leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to the sponsors of today's episode, that's KL Owens Stride Custom Braces and Lightforce Ortho. As always, this podcast would not be possible without the Illuminate team. That's Skylar Adler on the mixing console and Tom O'Grady on the Fender Rhodes piano. In fact, you may have noticed our remix theme song for season three, which features Tom on the keys, Skylar on drums, and yours truly on the bass. Thanks so much for listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. To hear exclusive outtakes, suggest a guest, or sponsor an episode, head over to IlluminateOrthoPodcast.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Chris Seta, signing off.